Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good evening. Thank you all for being here. Um, and thank you, Michael, for coming all this way. So, um, Michael's here from BC, Canada, British Columbia. And um, he's been coming to Wisconsin for over a decade to teach. And um, he travels around the world teaching, really. And uh, his teaching weaves together Buddhist uh, philosophy and teachings and yoga insights with social action in a way that invites us to um, wake up to our lives more intimately and uh, more deeply. So I'm really grateful that he's here, and I'm grateful you're all here, and it's going to be a wonderful weekend. Um, I think that's it for now. Now at the break, I'll say some other things. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Good evening. <clears throat> Thank you, Andrea, for the nice introduction. Um, can you hear me back there? If you can't, you need to move closer. <laughs> just You can just squeeze the chairs further uh, to the front. And if you need to spend a couple minutes moving around, I don't mind at all um, to get settled. I'm wondering if we can begin just sitting still for a few minutes. So um, if you organize your pelvis so that it's relatively balanced, I invite you to close your eyes if it's comfortable. since we've been greeting people that we know or maybe feeling awkward because we don't know anybody, uh, just notice how you're holding your face and relax your face. Relax the social version of your body.
and feel how your body really wants to breathe. So disorganize any tension in your torso by taking some long breaths. And then relax your breathing so your body can settle. It's Friday, it's the end of the work week. It's sundown. We're embedded for this evening or this weekend in a pop-up community. So just let your body receive all of this. Coming home. your eyes open. And before I begin, uh, just turn to someone on either side of you or behind you and just acknowledge them non-verbally. So it could be a smile, fist bump, <laughs> hugging is okay, within reason, foreheads, So thank you for having me here. I, I love coming here. And uh, I especially love coming to this space, to the corner store. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we should give everyone a piece of gum when they leave, you know, <laughs> or a sticker for their bicycle or something. <laughs> Do kids have bikes anymore? I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, in September uh, of this past year, which is less than a year ago, uh, a three-year-old named Island Curdy and his five-year-old brother Gallup and their mother Raheen uh, died in a very desperate attempt to flee from Syria to relatives in Canada. Uh, they were on a boat with a dozen people and this boy's little body was washed up on a beach. 
you remember that photograph? No. I have a three-year-old uh, boy, so I feel like it hits close to home, uh, like it does for many of you in here. Their aunt, Tima, uh, is a hairdresser uh, in Vancouver, uh, near where I live. And uh, she heard news about this uh, from her brother's wife. She said she got a call, and all uh, he said was, uh, my wife and the two boys are dead. I was trying to sponsor them, she said, and I have my friends and my neighbors who help me with the bank deposits. But we couldn't get them out, and so the bank deposits didn't work, and that's why they went into the boat. So those boys, uh, that family, was trying to get to Greece. I've been to Greece many times recently. Uh, the citizens in Greece, and especially young people in Greece, are being ruthlessly oppressed uh, by a narrative uh, called austerity. A narrative that's really cut into the lives and the families of people in Greece. The youth unemployment rate is skyrocketing still. We hear that in the newspaper, but unemployment is really bad for your digestion. It's really bad for your mental health. It's really bad for the stress levels in families and communities. That same narrative uh, has cut into the lives and the digestion of people in Wisconsin who also have been sold on this idea of austerity. You heard this story? In Greece, they're being told that the only way to get out of this mess of unemployment and debt is to start drilling for oil in the Aegean Sea. Have you ever been to the Aegean Sea? It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. I'm actually going there really soon. How can a culture, our culture, we're not separate, how can a culture that places so little value on human life uh, continue to let this happen? How is this possible? If you don't place value on human life, on life with a capital L, then you only get marginally upset when people go to the waves, or when a language dies, or a small island near the equator goes under in your lifetime, or the unemployed in Wisconsin become terminally, terminally unemployed and just stop looking for work and then eventually just stop being counted. So we're all part of a system that profits on exploitation. And when anything interrupts growth and profit, the system reorganizes itself to find a way to make profit on those losses. Syria Greece, Wisconsin, a three-year-old boy 
your body, my body, this amazing lake, these things are not separate. There are not forests over there, and a stadium over there, and birds over there, and you're breathing somewhere mixed up in it. So tonight, I'm not going to talk about ecology. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk about climate change. And I'm not going to talk about uh, economics. And I'm not going to talk about politics. <laughs> I want to talk about how we can use this practice that many of us are familiar with, that some of us have been practicing a really long time, so that we don't create a meaner and tougher society. That's it. When you hear about a three-year-old boy being washed up on shore, even it's through a vision a media image, I want your heart to be broken. If you're trying to de-stress so that your heart doesn't keep breaking, this isn't the right practice. And in a world where our leaders are shackled to corporate ideology, it's really important that we have a practice that ignites us as members of a community. You can't solve these problems as a shopper. Buying hybrid cars and better light bulbs <laughs> just aren't going to solve the, these issues. And the cure for being overwhelmed by these issues is to get into rooms like this. To get into rooms like this and feel the support of other people who are genuinely trying to transform their lives. Not so much as self-help or self-improvement, but to look closely at their minds. And in the process of looking at their minds and hearts, to train their minds and hearts. And in the process of training our minds and hearts, um, we start to find out that there's this a wellspring of creativity that we all have. Rather than waiting for some new leader with a new philosophy or a new ideology. It's not going to happen. So, it might sound a little kind of low bar or something, but my purpose tonight is uh, to offer you some practices so that we don't get meaner and we don't get tougher. That's it. Okay? So, tomorrow, we'll wake up less mean, <laughs> less tough. I've been teaching for the last month, uh, wherever I've been going, from a 12th century Tibetan text. Uh, that offers a series of practices called Lojong practices, um, which in my approach is a process for training our attitude, for sculpting our attitude, for sculpting our heart, so that it creates in us a natural reflex 
a natural response. So when things are going well, we don't hold on to it. And when things are tough, we're open to what's tough. But we don't get tough. And so what I wanted to do all weekend is just go through the text, <laughs> uh, excerpts from the text. And uh, the text is written in seven sections, which all together create 159 slogans. Um, the term <coughs> slogan was popularized by Pema Chodron, which everybody has read all her books at night before bed during the divorce. <laughs> um, never finished one of them. Anyways, she, I think she's the one who kind of pioneered this, this term slogan for the sentences. But the way I like to think of them is as bumper stickers. Each one is a bumper sticker. And when I was teaching in Kelowna, I was teaching for an organization that needs to do some fundraising. And I, I, I retranslated a lot of these into shorter bumper stickers, which they're going to use as a fundraising project, yeah, which I thought would be really fun. Well, fun, like, you know, stop blaming. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look at your handout, um, line 14 is where I'm going to start. And tonight, we're going to work the whole evening on line 14, which is a bumper sticker, which is a teaching that says, see confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. So just take that in. So see confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. That's what we're going to unpack tonight. And we'll do this for an hour. And then we'll have a little break, and then we'll keep going. See confusion. So that could be the bumper sticker. See confusion. Just see it. See confusion. Usually, when troubling situations arise, either interpersonally or intrapsychically, we hope that they'll just change. Maybe we do this. You know. And we hope against hope that they'll just go away. And sometimes impermanence just takes care of stuff. Right? You duck for a while and it goes away. But most of our repetitive confusions and delusions are like boomerangs. We duck, they go away for a while, and then we're looking this way to see where they went, and we get hit from the other side. Yeah. After the divorce, you remarry, and it ends exactly the same way. See confusion. So this is about looking at our troubles and taking them to a deeper level by repositioning ourselves so we can see our troubles more deeply. And this is really one of the core messages of the Buddha, 
that you can reposition yourself so you can look at trouble that's arising more deeply. When in fact your heart is organized to do exactly the opposite. Trouble is arising, we'd rather dwell in the space of confusion than reposition ourselves to look more clearly. Sometimes we don't have to reposition ourselves, others reposition us. <laughs> and we ask, what's really going on when we're upset? What's really going on when we're jealous? What's really going on when we feel resentment? What's really going on when we're in a fog? Sometimes things overwhelm us and we're in a fog of confusion or delusion. We're checking our emails, YouTube's open, the radio's on, and we're wondering if we should turn on the TV. <laughs> and if we keep ourselves hyper-aroused, then we don't have to feel anything. And we say to ourselves, well, I don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> but nowadays, you don't have to smoke. Our breaks at work are online. So actually, the brain never really has a chance to rest. You're hyper-aroused on the computer at work, or whatever you're doing, and then you need a break, and you go online and watch porn. Whatever porn you're into, human porn, my wife is into gardening porn, uh, house decorating porn, whatever, like yoga, well, yoga and porn are actually very close together, but that's a whole other thing. It's called Instagram. <clears throat> we can't see what's real. We lose track of ourselves. And then there's a hole in our head where our heart used to be. And what used to guide us um, is lost, and it's hard to find it again. And if you don't have a daily practice, it's really hard to find what the zero point is. And if you live indoors, and you don't spend time in the natural world, it's really hard to find where the ground is. The ground isn't a metaphor. The Latin etymology of the word confusion is uh, related to uh, two terms. One is uh, uh, movements in the mind, and the other is um, related to the term overthrow. So it's when the movements of the mind have overthrown our sensibility or orientation. Imagine a house in an empty field on fire. It's okay. House is on fire in an empty field, everyone gets out, 
you see the house burning. But usually what happens is the field catches fire and then the forests catch fire. And your day is like this. There's a little fire burning. Maybe it's the fire of anger. You don't know how to give it any space and everything becomes flammable. Your relationships, the way you speak to your colleagues, how you return emails, you're pissed off. So then at lunchtime, instead of eating something good for you, you do sabotage <coughs> eating. I'm mad, so I'm just going to have a falafel. In our family, we call them falafels. The compulsive gambler, the suicide bomber, the attention-seeking kid, the anorexic teen. These are all examples of confusion. Seeing confusion. And confusion is contagious, isn't it? If enough people are confused, it catches on and becomes the status quo. And when we're confused, we fear losing what we need. We fear loving the wrong thing. We fear making bad choices, even though we're making bad choices. In Indian philosophy, the way they talk about confusion is um, you're walking down a path and you see a snake and you jump and as you land, you look more closely and it was a rope. Have you done that to anybody this week? Didn't look close enough? You are convinced of your point of view. This is what our minds are always doing. They're, they're synthesizing uh, input from, they're in, synthesizing data from the sense organs, and then constructing that data into a sense of self, and then painting it. So, when we sit still, and we learn how to breathe, and we do somatic meditation, which is just waking up to a settled body and a settled heart. We're learning how to be okay with experience as it is. If there's confusion, we see that there's confusion. If there's a fire burning, we see there's a fire burning. Think about ways you've been confused this week. Or think about how you've deluded yourself this week. And how much energy went into painting over that. So we're being told here, see confusion as Buddha. See confusion as an opportunity to be awake. When you see lines like this that say Buddha, they're not talking about the historical Buddha. 
Buddha refers to your capacity to see clearly. Your capacity to be awake. The Buddha was not known as the Buddha. The Buddha's name was Gotama. Siddhartha Gotama. But people called him the Awakened One. The Buddha probably never heard, the Buddha probably never referred to himself as the Buddha. You see, now we say the Buddha, but that wasn't his name in his lifetime. It just means somebody who's awake. <coughs> so if we can see confusion as an opportunity for being awake, then this line is telling us we can see emptiness. And having a phrase like this sharpens your attention so you can bring that attention to confusion and to delusion. So we're practicing mindfulness to keep seeing thoughts as objects moving through awareness. <coughs> the Zen teacher Shinra Suzuki said, uh, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Don't be bothered by your thoughts. <coughs> you might be hearing this and thinking, what's he talking about? I mean, I'm confused. <laughs> we need to notice quickly passing thoughts because they're exhausting and we need to have real stability for the repetitive thoughts because it's not just that there's thoughts it's that some thoughts as they start to develop as memory kicks in um, they start to loop. And those loops become stories about ourselves and others. And when those stories continue unconsciously, they become belief systems. And then the deeper the belief system, the less access we have to it. Our deepest belief systems are unconscious. We don't see them. Without a meditative awareness, we act out of unwholesome thinking. We act out of thinking that's um, caught in patterns of craving, patterns of reactivity. You know that kind of thinking? I always tell people, when you have a meditation practice every day, how many of you have a meditation practice every day? When you have a meditation practice every day, everybody, great. <laughs> That's good for the podcast. So when, when, <laughs> when, you, when you have a meditation practice every day, the most important thing to pay attention to is the 20 minutes after you sit. Because when you sit, how you get up and how you train yourself in that 20 minutes is what really impacts the link between your formal practice and your daily life. To watch how as you stand up from the cushion, the new movements in your body 
create new patterns of sensation, which create new ideas. And then once the mind gets going and starts to worry or plan or whatever it gets into, for those 20 minutes, you just keep bringing the meditation practice to those mental states as they start to unfold. And that's the best training period, those 20 minutes. If you have the attitude like sitting is separate from my life, then sitting will have very little impact. Ajahn Sumedho says, uh, Thai, in the, from the Thai forest tradition, our practice, contrary to new age interpretations, is not about following your heart. It's about training your heart. It's not about following your heart. It's about training your heart. Sometimes we can get into this fantasy that, oh, I'm just going to follow my heart. If you do that, there's going to be a lot of unconscious motivations going on. <laughs> so we need bumper stickers all over the place to remind us how to train our hearts. And usually they need, trained, they need to be trained in the opposite direction of our inclinations. Not everything in your heart is so skillful and so wholesome. So, if you can see confusion as an opportunity to be awake. So usually we think confusion is the opposite of being awake. But if you see your confusion as an opportunity for practice, then you can see emptiness. You can, sorry, you can practice emptiness. So emptiness uh, in Dharma traditions is considered a very lofty teaching. Um, I want to talk about it in really simple ways to me. And it begins with a meditation instruction, which I usually call no add-ons. When you sit, see if it's possible to sit still Feel your breathing, and don't add anything onto it. See if it's possible to get sad, and don't add anything to it. See if it's possible to feel a broken heart, and don't add anything to it. Because as soon as you add something to it, you become a self. You become a somebody. I'm for this. I'm against this. So there's the arising of experience. And then there's the reaction. Mutable, conditioned, malleable. There's the arising of the experience. And then there's the reaction to it. But what actually arises in meditative practice? Like, what's really going on? You sit still, and what shows up? Anybody, what shows up? Planning. What's that? Planning. Planning. Thoughts. Emotions. 
Discomfort. Discomfort. <laughs> Judgment. <coughs> Keep going. Aversion. Aversion. Sleepiness. Sleepiness. Stories. Stories. Trauma. Trauma. Distraction. Distraction. Justification. Justification. Noise. Noise. Okay. So, body, sensations show up. Images. You've described images. Uh, sense, sounds, all kinds of. So, that's all body stuff, right? Images show up. Feelings show up. Thoughts, right? Anything else? Let's go through that again. So, stuff from the senses, right? Sound, so on. Images. What else? Yeah, feelings. Feelings. And thoughts. Four things. I'm going to add a fifth thing, because some of you might have forgotten because of your daily practice, but... A fifth thing that arises for meditators is mindfulness. That actually you can start, to, I wouldn't put it in the thought category. That you actually start to notice more refined states of awareness as you practice. But basically there's four or five things that you pay attention to. In a text called the Heart Sutra, which is the text on emptiness, I think, um, it doesn't say that all forms are impermanent. It says that all forms are empty. In other words, it's not that this stuff that's arising, sensations, thoughts, and so on, are changing, like everyone likes to think it's all changing. It's that when you look closely at what's changing, there's no thing there that's really changing. Like as soon as you say that was a thought that changed, if you look more closely that wasn't a thought. It was like wind, tree, color, like, like this very quick kind of synaptic movement that's pre-reflective. You can't find the thing that is the thing that you think is changing. But emptiness is also not a thing. So for those of you who think, yeah, I get into this meditative state and I go so empty, that's also not emptiness. Emptiness is a sensibility. It's a sensibility we start to internalize in our practice. It's a sensibility that synchronizes us with the fluidity of how things really are. It's wisdom. It's a way of looking at our experience to see that everything is empty of what you think it is. Everything is empty of I, me, and mine. Nothing belongs to you. Not your anger, not your sorrow, not your happiness, Not your truck. <laughs> 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 
everything in external reality is empty of self. Everything inside you is changing and empty. The me that I think is me as a subject is empty. Emptiness doesn't mean you won't suffer anymore. It's just a sensibility that lets you see the add-ons. It lets you see how you paint things. Emptiness is a term that's a placeholder for opening our eyes. And I call this awakening. When I say awakening, what I mean is you walk into a room that has a dimmer switch and as you practice, you slowly turn on the lights and it gets brighter and brighter. And then you can see more stuff. I was listening to a story on the radio about uh, this researcher who studies <clears throat> the effect of artificial light on culture. And one of the things he explored was he did a lot of studies in New England where uh, he would look through old microfiche of uh, newspapers around the time that people got light bulbs in their houses. And it turns out that one of the things a lot of people complained about was that when they, they were shy once they got lights in their house of having people over because the houses were so dirty. And now there was this whole new obsession with keeping your house clean and they also saw that their furniture was really banged up and looked a lot worse than they had imagined. And there was this whole social pressure to buy new furniture. And furniture sales and house cleaning became the predominant focus of middle class households when they got lights. But every meditator knows this is you think you do the MBSR course and you're going to be all peace and de-stressed and everything. But actually, as you start turning on the lights, you start to see like a lot more shit. <laughs> and when you practice like this, it's not that you lose the darkness. It's that you start losing the life that you were planning to have. That you thought that there was this life you were going to have. <laughs> but it's not growing into that life. Like your body. You thought there was this body that you were going to have, you know. Have you like looked your, lately? <laughs> <laughs> There was a life that we were attached to, and we're losing it. So how is that related to emptiness? Because the way emptiness functions in a person is not a philosophy, like they walk around going, empty, empty. It functions as not knowing. Not knowing is how emptiness functions. Not knowing is how you dance with emptiness. It's how you move with emptiness. And there's something really good about losing your orientation to things. 
The lights turn on and you think that that's orienting you. Well, it's orienting you, but not to the stuff that you were attached to. And then something happens where you start becoming less frightened of your own mind. <clears throat> and you know, maybe it's not even your mind anymore. It's sound and images and the wind blowing through the tree outside your window. <clears throat> Dreams of people you miss. Ice cream. The front door. The smell of babies. It's not your mind anymore. So what we're liberated from in this practice is the way that we hold on to things. How we've been holding on to things. And emptiness is a way of describing a lighter way of moving with things. And then we care more and more deeply. And we show up for the world more and more deeply. And we show up for others with more stability. And we show up for ourselves without being frightened of who we are. And you know the things we most often avoid are the things that really wake us up. Like being an idiot. <laughs> How much time we avoid being dumb. Like just having no clue what to do. <laughs> like really no idea. No idea. But actually, having no idea, which is the thing we're always trying to avoid, really frees us to see clearly. It's one of the great things about traveling, isn't it? Not knowing. And if you can practice not knowing as your primary practice, you won't be on top of your partner all the time. You won't be on top of your kids all the time. They can get to you. So when you hear teachings like this, see confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. When you hear teachings like this, don't listen to them as an intellectual. Or like you're deciding how to fit this into your worldview. But begin with the mind of a meditator. So this begins with being calm. So sitting still and getting calm. If you live in a way that's very anxious, it will be hard to sit still. It might take some more time. If you have a job that reinforces a greedy state of mind, it'll be hard to sit still. Because when you're sitting still, your mind is still going to be acting out the wanting. Even wanting something out of the practice. I want to get calm. 
Can I do a private class with you? <laughs> so the first practice we do is we settle our breathing to calm our body. And we settle our body to calm our mind. Sometimes this brings a sense of peace. I usually describe it as a sense of wholeness. When you get calm, you feel a sense of wholeness. Your mental activity calms down quite a lot. And then one of the things that starts to happen is you start to notice how as you get up from the cushion after you meditate, you start to see really clearly how certain thought patterns kick in which ones they are, and how they reinforce a sense of self. The Buddha said the two forms of clinging that are the hardest to see are I am good and I am bad. So, that's what we have to do if we're going to see confusion. You know, monastic practice is the core of this tradition, <clears throat> but it's not so much my thing. I want my students to get a job, um, to live a life that's multi-generational around lots of different kinds of people. Um, <clears throat> and um, to get the best education they can without going into too much debt, unless you, unless you marry a rich person. <laughs> and then uh, just to dig in in one place and just practice there for a really long time. So that what we're practicing is um, <clears throat> embeddedness. How to be embedded in our bodies that are changing how to be embedded in our communities that are changing, how to be embedded in our families that are changing. And when you embed yourself in a network, you see confusion. And you see delusion. And you see people that can't kick their habits. And you try to help them and it doesn't work. Not this time around. And uh, the fact that no matter what you do, it doesn't help. Helps you. It wakes you up in the middle of confusion or delusion. Maybe it's the delusion that you can fix everybody. Or what's it like to see an image of tragedy and let it in and not have the ability to do something about it. And just to watch how that functions. Or even just to watch what it's like coming into a space like this. Here's community. It's not perfect. 
I guarantee with this many people here, there's people here you like and people here you don't care for so much. Don't think about that too long. <laughs> so notice your delusions. Because you don't know anything. See confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. Really look at what the ego does, especially in relationships. Really see how the self functions, especially when you're embedded in relationships. Someone asked, asked me recently, what is the definition of self? So I said, drag. It's like drag, you know, like bad aerodynamics, right? You have too much self, things, it's like, it's like a pickup truck. Right? And if you have not so much self, it's like a Lamborghini. Is that a good simile? No, okay, never mind. The point is, is that the self uh, slows us down. And the less we're preoccupied with ourselves, which happens when our attention's more balanced, uh, the more loving we are and the more creative we are. So treat other people like you love them. Treat your body like you love your body. I always say to people, you should treat your mind like a two-year-old that you love. So I, I have a three-year-old, a three-year-old. So I have a three-year-old. And my three-year-old, we're in a phase where he really needs boundaries. Okay? So like, he, he won't, when it, sunrise, first thing we do in the morning is we make a fire. Before I even have the fire going, he, go, he wants to go outside in his pajamas. It's really cold. In bare feet. And he'll go play out there for a long, long time. And if I have to bring him inside, he, he goes crazy. He doesn't want to go inside. Doesn't want to wear socks. And I can see myself doing things like, oh, he just wants to be natural. Yeah, well, then he's like sick all the time. We've been more sick this year than I think... I don't know if it's a comedy or a tragedy yet. He needs someone to say, you have to have your shoes on and you have to have your socks on. Can you do that with your mind? Can you treat your mind like a three-year-old that needs someone to say no? <laughs> like, no, we're not going down that road again. <laughs> yeah. And no matter how long you think about that, you're not going to solve it by thinking about it again. And then, you come back to your breathing, it still has a lot of power. You come back to your breathing. It still has a lot. And every time you come back to your breathing, 
you start to see what's happening more and more and more. And then there's a point where the narrative that you thought was like reality just puff. It had no substance at all. And you see that you were actually giving it the substance by the way you were relating to it, you see. But you didn't, you couldn't see that. The more you focus on your story about Dan, the, the less you see that you're angry. The more you think it's about Dan, the less you see your anger. How long are you going to tell the story about Dan? Don't answer that question. <laughs> well, I think two more years, you know, and then I'm going to... So you have to treat your mind like a three-year-old. Not just a three-year-old, but a three-year-old boy. <laughs> you have to treat like my three-year-old boy, basically, and say, no, you can't, you can't do that. Come back. And it's so loving, and it's what the mind needs. <laughs> because there are some mental states we have that are infantile. They have no boundaries. They have so much power over us. And we have to be better guardians. And then practice starts lightening you up. And the world needs an extra measure of light right now. <clears throat> and this is why uh, compassion and love makes so much sense. Because we can't hold on to anything anyways. So then, how do you not love the world? That is you. How do you not love others that are you? And how do you not love yourself for being all of this? <clears throat> so, see Buddha, practice emptiness. When you see confusion, see it. And then, remember the bumper sticker. Confusion is Buddha. Confusion is awakening. It's a gate. Open that gate. See it. Look at it. Investigate it. And then practice emptiness. What's emptiness? It's a sensibility. It's a, it's a way of seeing that nothing actually exists the way you think it does. It's a way of seeing that nothing belongs to you. It's a way of seeing that the you you think anything belongs to also doesn't even belong to you. There's no final you that anything belongs to. And as we're going to study tomorrow, when you really get that, death is going to be easier. This is where this text is going. It's basically saying that if you see confusion as Buddha, I'm giving away tomorrow, but it's basically saying if you see confusion as Buddha and you can see 
how you're constructing so much of your distress, then you can die more easily. You, you can die more easily. So, let me end this part of our evening by just saying that uh, we live in a world that is so tough and so mean. And sometimes it can really get us down, you know. And we don't see, I think, unless we have a practice, we don't see how we get tough and we get mean. There's something about practice that keeps you more connected to the earth and other people, especially if you practice with other people. And when that toughness and meanness becomes contagious and spreads, you get systems of thinking that are really exploitive. And so I want to suggest that this practice of sitting still, this practice of opening up our bodies, this practice of training our heart and our attitude, it's a lot of hard work. But it takes a lot of hard work to train in compassion at a time where there's, things are tough. And if we do that, then we don't contribute to the tough attitude. That's responsible for austerity and these kind of fantasies that hurt families so much. So thank you.